Our Old Testament lesson comes from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 24. Hear now the word of our God from Exodus chapter 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the board, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the board, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people, and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone, with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait for us here until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. This is the word of the Lord. Exodus 24 is relating the the first worship service of the people of God as they come to Mount Sinai. Uh, God had told Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let my son go, that he may serve me, that he may worship me. And This was the mountain that God had called them to come and worship and offer sacrifices at. And so now they're doing the thing that God had called them to do, to come to to Sinai and worship the Lord. Now, um, in one sense, Israel has already been baptized. You have this, you have this moment where, when Moses is, th- is sprinkling blood on them. But in one sense, they've already been baptized in the cloud and in the sea. The glory cloud, the, the pillar of fire by night and cloud by day, which we hear at the end of the chapter is settled on top of Mount Sinai. This was the same glory cloud that had led them through the Red Sea and led them through the wilderness. So in that sense, they were baptized in the cloud and in the sea as Israel had come through the Red Sea. The Red Sea is, the, is, is, is where Israel is brought by water and the Spirit to Mount Sinai, to the presence of the living God. But there's another sort of baptism that Israel undergoes at the mountain as Moses sprinkles them with the blood of the sacrifice. And he says, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Uh, as, as we heard at the beginning of the chapter, 
Only Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 elders are allowed to come partway up the mountain. This may be Israel's first corporate worship service, but they, they, they aren't yet able to come all the way up the mountain. Because, well, how can a sinful humanity enter the presence of a holy God? It can only be through the sacrifice. And that's where the blood of the covenant that you see in chapter 24 here is reminding them that, that entering the presence of God requires a sacrifice. As Moses has received the book of the covenant, you have this language of the book of the covenant and the blood of the covenant. He's received the book of the covenant. He's received, this is chapters 20 to 23, where, where God had laid out the sort of the basic rules built, built on the Ten Commandments. And so he's written this all down now, and now he reads it to the people. So you might say here you have, you might say the, the, the reading and the proclamation of the word of God. The, in the book of the covenant, you have the word of the Lord. And now with the blood of the covenant, you have a, a sprinkling, a cleansing, as Israel is brought out of death into life. Uh, so you can see how there's a way in which this is a baptism for the remission of sins. I mean, that's part of what God is teaching them. Through the sprinkling of the blood of the sacrifice, they will be cleansed. They will become part, uh, made, made the people of God. Now, our, our psalm of response is the song that Augustine would have sung at every baptism, Psalm 42. In, in Psalm 42, the, the psalmist is panting, thirsting for God. Uh, the, the, ge- the geography in the psalm is, is located in the far north of Israel, the land of Jordan and Hermon, where deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. Uh, this is even north of, of Galilee, where the Jordan River continues on further, further north, uh, or it, of course not continuing on, it's, this is where it comes from. There's, there's, this, is, this is a land of waterfalls. This is a land of, 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 of lots of water. Indeed, too much water. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. The, the waters of baptism are a rushing torrent that threaten to sweep us all away. I mean, but that's the picture that the apostles use of baptism. Peter, in 1 Peter 3, speaks of, of the flood as a type of baptism where God saved Noah and his family in the same waters that destroyed the wicked. Or Paul speaks of how Israel was baptized in the cloud and in the sea, the same Red Sea that destroyed Pharaoh's army. Water cleanses, but water also destroys. After all, how does water cleanse? By destruction. The, the dirt gets destroyed. The dirt gets removed. Washing away dirt from the body. Water cleanses by removing that which is impure. And that's what your baptism was all about. Maybe you didn't realize it at the time. Maybe, maybe you were baptized as an infant and so you don't even remember that day. Or maybe you were baptized and you, and you didn't really understand what exactly was going on. But... This is why the psalmist calls us in the refrain to hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. As we grow in grace, as we grow in our understanding of of what God is doing in our lives, we start to see, we start to look back at our baptism and see what God was doing in cleansing us and continuing to renew us by, by the blood of Christ.
Our New Testament lesson comes from the book of Titus, chapter 3. We'll start in chapter 2, verse 11. Here now the word of our God, starting in Titus, chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and world, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. This is the word of the Lord. In, in the Apostles' Creed, we, we confess that we believe in the communion of saints, the, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, now, the Nicene Creed rephrases those two into, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And you might wonder, well, are we sure, really, does the forgiveness of sins, is that, is that really thinking about baptism? But the Apostles make this connection all the time. You know, when, when Paul, in, when he was relaying the story of his conversion in Acts 22, he says that Ananias told him, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When Ananias is going to, is going to say to, to, at that time, Saul of Tarsus, sort of, what does it mean? How, how, how does one have their sins forgiven? Well, he says, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Because after all, what is baptism for? In, on the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter in, in Acts chapter 2 says that baptism is for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about baptism, we need to recognize that what is baptism for? Well, baptism is for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. As you were washed, Paul says, you were cleansed. Sort of your, your cleansing, your salvation is, 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 this is why we talk about baptism as a sign and a seal of the covenant. Uh, but we sometimes, okay, what does that mean, a sign and a seal? Well, as signs of the gospel, the sacraments are depicting our salvation. 
as seals, they confirm the same gospel, the same salvation, our participation in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As, as Paul will say in, in, in Romans 6, that we are baptized into Christ. We're baptized into uh, His death. That, and because the gospel, because the good news is that Jesus has died for our sins and been raised from the dead so that we might have life. The eternal Son of God became all that we are by nature so that we might become all that He is by grace. Why did Jesus come? He came to join us to the life of God Himself. And even His preaching sets forth the message of this gospel, so also the sacraments apply the message of the gospel. As we receive the the preaching of the word by faith, we also receive the blessings of the sacraments by faith. In other words, just like we saw in Exodus 24, the book of the covenant and the blood of the covenant go together. You can't just sort of pull them apart and say, well, we have the word, but we don't have the sacrament. No, actually, you have to have both. The, the book of the covenant and the blood of the covenant are inextricably bound together. As Moses had said, behold the blood of the covenant in accordance with all these words. Just think about it for a moment. What would happen if you had the book of the covenant without the blood of the covenant? Well, what's the book of the covenant? Well, it's the law. It's where God says, here's what, here's what you're supposed to do. Without the blood of the covenant, the book of the covenant is powerless. I like to put it this way. What if, what if God gave us the Bible, but Jesus never really came? You'd have a great story. But where's the power? If Jesus never died, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if there is no blood of the covenant, then the book of the covenant is powerless. But without the, without just imagine what would happen if Jesus had come and he died and he rose again and he sits at the right hand of the Father and he never told us about it. Well, then the blood of the covenant just became meaningless. Because so what if Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father? If he never told us about it, then how would we know how to be saved? So the book of the covenant without the blood of the covenant is powerless. But the blood of the covenant without the book of the covenant is meaningless. And this is why the church has always held word and sacrament together, saying, actually, you need them both. Because... Sometimes I think our tendency can be, oh, well, you know, the word is what really matters. Well, but so do the signs. The signs and the seals matter too because we are embodied creatures. And words come to us and you can, you can sort of at times think that, oh, just a, just detached minds, we're souls. That, so, no, we are embodied. And so God gave us sacraments in order to keep our body and soul together, even as we are fed at the table, even as we are baptized. Our baptism is, is, a, is a physical, demonstrable sign, yes, and, we, and the sign is the easy part when we think about the sacrament. This, ah, yes, it's a sign. It points us to something else. But it's also important to see it as a seal. That's why I, I actually, I like, I like the phrase depict and confirm, because Signs and seals, sometimes we, we get so, oh, that's just, they're, they're, they're signs and seals. 
actually there was a great moment at the OPC General Assembly when when there was a revision to the church order uh, was looking at the directory for worship and, and, and somebody proposed using depict and confirm in place of sign and seal and there was big controversy over this and finally the author of the, of the section was like can, can somebody explain to me what is, a, what is a sign and a seal if it's not depicting and confirming and a couple guys tried, but they quickly realized signs depict, seals confirm. That's just what they do. Depict and confirm. It's just people have gotten. Oh, we always use the language of sign and seal. But if you know, don't know what it means, what was the point of using it? <laughs> How do you make sure that? What does it mean for a sign to signify? It means to depict something, to show it. What does it mean for a seal? To, or what is a seal? A seal is something that, that confirms. We don't use seals as much as they did in the old days, but the seal is, 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 is the stamp that, that sort of demonstrates authenticity. And so when you think about what does it mean for, the, the, for, for baptism to signify and seal to you that the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross benefits you, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism says very nicely that Christ instituted this outward washing and with it gave the promise that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and spirit wash away the impurity of my soul, that is, all my sins. In Matthew 28, Jesus instituted the sacrament of baptism and he said, Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Depicting and confirming. This is what, this is what baptism is. As, as you are baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that you, that you recognize that as, as the water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly His blood and Spirit wash away all my sins. And so what does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and Spirit? Well, to be washed with Christ's blood means to receive forgiveness of sins from God. That because of Christ's blood poured out for us in His sacrifice on the cross, by grace we are cleansed. By grace we are, we are renewed. To be washed with His Spirit means to be renewed by the Spirit and sanctified to be members of Christ so that more and more we become dead to sin and lead a holy and blameless life. Bapt- baptism in this respect is, is the sacrament of the beginning of the Christian life. In Acts 2, after Peter proclaims the gospel of Jesus, when he declares that Jesus is the exalted Christ who has poured out the the Holy Spirit on his people, the crowd asks Peter, what shall we do? And Peter answers, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So baptism is the sacrament of the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have no other cleansing than in the blood of Jesus Christ. And to be washed with his blood, to be washed in the Spirit, means that we have received the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Jesus promises in, in the Great Commission. He says, 
baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And, and that's where, what Titus is saying in Titus 3.5 in our passage today. Paul connects the, the sign and the thing signified so that he speaks of, of the washing of regeneration. This, this is the language that, that, that Paul says. He says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, some have tried to say, oh, well, you know, washing of regeneration doesn't have to refer to baptism. But remember that, that the sacrament includes two parts. There's the outward sign of water and the inward reality of what the sign points to. Baptism includes two things. The outward sign of washing with water, the inward work of the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Paul is plainly talking about at least the inward reality, which means that he is talking about the thing that baptism signifies. And then he's using language that ever, it's of washing that is the language of the outward sign. So he's including both the outward sign, washing, the, and the inward reality, regeneration. So if you're talking about both the outward sign and the inward reality, yeah, he's talking about baptism. Because baptism is, it's, it, it illustrates beautifully the, the primacy of God's grace in salvation. What, what do you do in baptism? When you're being baptized, you don't do anything. As Paul says, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. In baptism, God places his name on you. In baptism, God claims you as his own. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We are baptized by one spirit into one body. Now, some would then say, well, but does the outward washing with water itself wash away sins? Well, no. Only the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. The outward washing does not cleanse the soul. Only the blood of Christ applied by his Holy Spirit can cleanse us from our sins. So you need both the outward sign and the inward reality. And so so some have wondered, well, then why does God do this? Why does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing of regeneration or the washing away of sins? And the Heidelberg Catechism, again, has a useful way of saying it. He says, it says, God speaks this way for a good reason. Obviously he does. He wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ remove our sins just as water takes away dirt from the body. But even more important, so that was the sign image, the sign image, water takes away dirt from the body, Christ removes our sin. But even more important, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge, this is the seal language, that we are as truly cleansed from our sins spiritually as we are bodily washed with water. So on the one hand, we need to clearly distinguish between the outward sign and the inward reality. We also need to see the connection between them. That if that really our baptism is about our assurance that if you've been baptized into Christ, if you have been joined to him, then you have been cleansed from your sins. 
And again, because... The, uh, again, the, I like the Heidelberg's way of putting it. He wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ remove our sins just as water takes away dirt from the body. But even more important, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly cleansed from our sins spiritually as we are bodily washed with water. And, and that's where the question naturally arises out of this. Well, so does this mean that everybody who gets baptized gets cleansed? Is, you know, if, if the Heidelberg Catechism is saying, okay, this inward, the inward reality is connected to the outward sign, how, how do we think about this? Well, the, the Apostle Peter, in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 9, says that you know, he, speaks, he speaks of the apostate and says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So I think we have to say that there's a sense in which there's a, a sort of cleansing that comes to all those who are baptized, all those who are united to Christ and his church. Uh, after all, the, the church of Jesus Christ is the body of Christ, the household of salvation. All those who are part of the church do, at least outwardly, share in the benefits of Christ. And they share as they participate in the means of grace. But as Peter says, the apostate has forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. There is a sort of temporary cleansing. I mean, you think about how Jesus talks about the one who is forgiven by, you know, he has this huge debt, and he's forgiven of it, and then he goes and tries to shake down the, the other servant for a smaller debt. And Jesus says that the, the master who forgave the big debt will now go back and revoke the forgiveness. And you're like, wait a second, what? <laughs> yeah. The, the, this is, the, the, there's a when we talk about which those who are um, those who, who have, as Peter says in Second Peter one nine, those who have forgotten that they were cleansed from their former sins, they return to wallow in their sin, and so in a sense, there's that that cleansing is only a temporary and partial cleansing. It's not a the eternal salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus, but. Then again, haven't you all seen how apostasy works? Those who, for a while, and I remember there was there was a a man in my church that I grew up in. He was he was one of the best teachers we had. And then I, I didn't I didn't witness this happening, but after I left for college, he he just completely denied the faith, went out, and just walked entirely away. Here was a guy who had taught the doctrines of the faith to many, who then blew it all off and apostatized and turned away from the faith. And so you say, well, was was he ever really saved? Well, the Apostle John will say, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they wouldn't have gone out from us. So there's a sense in which they never really had the root. It's, it's, the, it's the illustration that Jesus uses in the, in the parable of the seed and the soils. That, that the sower sows the seed. And some falls on the rocky soil. And you know those, it springs up quickly. But it withers and dies because it has no root. So you see, when I talk about a temporary and partial forgiveness, 
It's because they don't have the root. They don't have what we would call regeneration. They don't have, they don't have the life of God in the, at the heart. And so what they have is, they have the outward participation in the people of God, which is to say that they have been cleansed from their former sins, they've been, they've been, but they haven't got the root. They haven't got a life-giving union with Christ. And so therefore, this temporary and partial experience of God's grace only serves to result in their condemnation and judgment as they turn away from it. Because there is another sense in which only the elect are cleansed fully and completely in their baptism. Because only the elect will persevere to the end. Because, now, but part of it is, part of why I, I like using the Heidelberg for this is because the Heidelberg Catechism is, is trying to show you, sort of, you should see your baptism as a reminder of what God has done for you. That as you, as, you, know, you should be assured by this divine pledge and sign that you are as truly cleansed from your sins spiritually as you were bodily washed with water. Baptism is designed to remind us that God has put his name on us. He has claimed us as his own. And, and that's why... And that's why we, we also baptize children, as the Heidelberg puts it. Infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant and congregation. Through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to them, no less than to adults. That's building off of what, what, what Peter says on the day of Pentecost. That when, right after saying that, that repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. He then says, this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So when Peter pre- preaches baptism on the, for the forgiveness of sins in Acts 2, he's actually then saying, so this promise is for you and your children, which anybody listening to him, who would be very familiar with the promise to Abraham, you hear... You hear, for you and your children, and they're going to hear that as, right, because my children are included with me in the promises of God. This promise is for you and for your children. And, and therefore, the Catechism puts it, by baptism as a sign of the covenant, they must be grafted into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. Because baptism distinguishes us from the world. It marks us with the sign and seal of the covenant. In baptism, God says, this one is mine. Now, that's where there's, as, as we've been going through the book of Joshua, the evening service, it's, it's important to remember that it's, a, it's also a, a fearful thing to belong to God because God is faithful to his covenant. And if we rebel against him, if we worship other gods, then he will bring judgment upon us. And that's... And that's, but, but on the other hand, it's a, it's a great blessing. I, I, I once, after, after preaching on, on all this, I, I once had a parent come up to me and say, well then, I, we probably shouldn't have our kids baptized because then if they repositize, there'll be greater judgment against them. Um, well, the, I mean, yes, that is true. There will be greater judgment. But... Is that ever the way God tells his people to operate? To operate in fear, saying, oh, but if this happens, then no. Because what's the alternative? Well, 
the, the alternative would be to say, well, you're not really part of the people of God. I mean, if you think about it, if, 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 you, if you believe that your children aren't part of God's people, then you wouldn't teach them to pray. You would never, certainly, you would never say, Our Father, who art in heaven, because if they're not part of God's people, then they shouldn't call God their Father, because he's not. But that's where, if we call him Father, if we teach our children to call him Father, then we're saying, you are part of the people of God. And so that's, that's an important thing. And also, I mean, and of course I say this as one who's living through it right now, <laughs> It's not the end of the story yet. Because when, you, when God's name is placed on someone, he doesn't forget his promises. I mean, just as I've seen so many times, it's one of the things that I've, just in my observation as, as serving as an elder, in, and I've served on borrowed sessions, sort of where elders will serve on other churches. To, I've just seen so many cases of where, where the church followed her discipline the way that Jesus says to, and the way that God uses discipline in order to bring people back to himself. I mean, that's, that's something... I, I've, I've seen... I've, I've, occasionally, you find people who, they, who weren't disciplined and come back anyway. <laughs> but it's just when... when I, I've, I've seen this... I have a niece that her church excommunicated her and the the church did well at sort of praying for her regularly and in fact one Sunday when she came for a visit they were praying for her by name from the pulpit that day (laughs) and that was part of what God used to bring her back to himself so as we think about sort of what baptism is all about in baptism, God claims you for himself. And as we think about what it means for us to then put this into practice in how we live, when he claims you as himself, he says, this one is mine. And he calls this person to be his. And so we have to keep remembering that and living that in the midst of all other trials. So let's pray. O oh Lord, our God, have mercy on us. Thank you for your Son, our Lord Jesus. Thank you for him who, who joined himself to us, to our humanity. And because in his incarnation, he took our flesh and blood. He came and, and joined himself to us in order that he might join us to you. And we, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, that we might, that we might that we might hear your promises and believe your word and walk humbly before you in Jesus' name. Amen.